0: It was one of the greatest atrocities in the history of the human race, the Holocaust perpetrated by Nazi Germany during World War II. Over 17 million people were killed by the Nazis, six million of those were Jews. We see what's taking place in Israel the last two days, and you understand why the Jewish people take their security so seriously after what they went through at the hands of the Nazis. And today, surrounded by millions of people, followers of the religion of the sword, who have committed to fulfill and carry on the work of the Holocaust. But during the Holocaust, Nazi Germany opened up numerous concentration camps. Concentration camps where they systematically eliminated the Jews and other people that they deemed as being detrimental to the advancement of their Aryan race project. One of these concentration camps was a place in northern Germany known as Ravensbrück. Ravensbrück was a concentration camp devoted solely to women, female prisoners. And over the course of World War II, over 130 women were sent to Ravensbrück, where they endured incredible atrocities. Subjected to forced labor, abuse, forced medical experimentation. Over the years, upwards of 90,000 women died there at Ravensbrück, a horrible place. Two of the women who spent time in Ravensbrook, one who lost her life there, uh, were Corey and her sister Betsy Tenboom. You may know their story from Corey Tenboom's famous book, The Hiding Place. Corey Tenboom would survive the atrocities of Ravensbrook and live to go on to serve Jesus as an apologist and an evangelist, sharing the hope of the gospel that she found even in the midst of the atrocities of World War II. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corey Tenboom recalls a story when she was preaching at a church in Germany uh, post-World War II. And in this church, she met one of the guards from Ravensbrück concentration camp, a guard that she recognized, a guard who had subjected her sister and herself to incredible indignities. Corey writes this, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard in the shower room in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there again, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming, and bowing, how grateful I am for your message, Froline, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away, and he thrust out his hand to shake mine. What would you do in that situation? Would you extend a hand of mercy to that gentleman? This morning, we're going to consider one of our Lord's most challenging teachings. It's the fifth in our series in the Beatitudes. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read for us Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 this morning as we look to this fifth Beatitude. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our study of this beatitude. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would once again open our eyes to the beauty and power and supremacy of your truth, Lord. And today as we look at this topic of mercy, an issue that our world desperately needs today, we pray, God, that you would speak your truth clearly to us through your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly and faithfully today, and I pray that you would humble us, Lord, as we consider this powerful teaching and what it means for each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Friends, mercy matters. And here in this fifth beatitude, I want us to consider this morning three mercy matters. Three mercy matters in Jesus' teaching. The first of these this morning is the meaning of mercy. What, what exactly does Jesus mean when he declares blessed are the merciful? You know, when you think of the word mercy, what, what does that word mean to you? Some of you might remember the, the, the game you played as kids, you know, where you try to wrestle each other's wrists back and you beg for mercy, Right? What does mercy mean? You know, it's a hard word to define without using the word itself, isn't it? What is mercy? Well, you know, it means to have mercy. But what exactly are we talking about? And it's also a tricky word because the word mercy is often used interchangeably with another word that we find throughout Scripture, the word grace. And, And so we use these words often interchangeably, grace and mercy, mercy and grace. But the reality is these are different words, And they mean different things. We see this, for example, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, where he makes a distinction between mercy and grace. For example, when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here Paul is is praying for God's grace in their lives. But then Paul writes to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, And Paul writes to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So so here we see that Paul understood there was a difference, there was a distinction between grace and mercy. These were different things. It's interesting, Paul uses this same wording to Timothy. He uses it again in 2 Timothy. He also uses it in his greeting to Pastor Titus. The three pastoral epistles in the New Testament, Paul prays for mercy. I I think he knew that us pastors need an extra helping of mercy in our lives. But there's a difference. If we were to look purely at the the original languages to to try to understand the difference between mercy and grace, we would see, for example, that in the Greek, the word mercy is eleos, and and it has this connotation of pity and compassion. But but grace, the word is charis, and, and grace, charis, means kindness, goodwill, favor. Now, again, this isn't very helpful, is it, when we're trying to figure out the distinction because we see how closely related these two things are. Right? Kindness, goodwill, compassion, pity, favor. They're very, very closely aligned. And so to truly define them, to to see the distinction between mercy and grace, the way we need to understand this is by looking at them contextually throughout Scripture. How, How does the Bible use these two words? John Stott, who was one of the leading Christian scholars of the 20th century, he describes the biblical use of these words like this. He says, the noun, eleos, mercy, always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress. These results of sin. And charis, grace, always deals with the sin and guilt itself. The one extends relief, the other pardon. Now, here we're getting somewhere, right? Right? Now we're starting to see that when when the word grace is used, grace is used in reference to pardon. God is forgiving our sins. He is pardoning our sins. But mercy, mercy is actually working to relieve the effects of our sins, the the burdens of our sins, the, the results of our sins. Pardon and relief. Probably one of the the greatest passages of Scripture to help us understand this distinction. It's found in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says and how we see the distinction here between pardon or grace and relief of the effects of our sin, which is mercy. Mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated... And he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now here again in this passage, we see both of these things. In fact, we see that grace and mercy are actually two sides of the same coin that we call the gospel, right? The gospel includes both of these realities, grace And mercy God saved us Paul says in verse 5 we have been saved by grace but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive he brought us back to life he set us on a new trajectory he set us on a new path he promises us riches in heaven for all of eternity right those are all the works of mercy Alleviating the effects or consequences of our sin, but it was His grace that pardoned us of our sin. If you were to think of these two terms, grace and mercy, probably one of the most beautiful pictures of this that we find in the scriptures is Jesus' story of the prodigal son. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, here is this young man who grew up in the in the home of a wealthy father. And in his father's home, he had everything he could ever desire. He he had fine clothes and always had good food. And and they had servants who worked their their property for them. And his father was always there to lavish love and care for his son. But his son decided that he wanted to do life on his terms. He wanted to to go out into the world and, and live his own way. And so he forsaked all that his father had to offer him. And he went to his father. He said, Father, I want my inheritance now. Give it to me now, and I'm gonna go live my life the way I want to live it. And his father graciously agreed and gave his son his inheritance. And Jesus tells in the story of the prodigal son how the son, and the word prodigal, by the mean, the word prodigal, by the way, means wasteful. The wasteful son. This prodigal, wasteful son took his father's inheritance and he went to a faraway land and he lived his life the way that he wanted to live it. And he lived it up. He partied, he had friends, he had ladies, he had everything that a young man living by his fleshly desires could want. But after some time, the money dried up. And when the money dried up, the parties stopped. And the girls disappeared, and the friends went elsewhere. And this young man in a faraway land found himself desperate, without any money. He ended up working in his desperate, destitute condition. He ended up working in a pig farm. And Jesus tells in this parable, this young man was so hungry, so desperately hungry, that he literally ate the slop that he would feed the pigs just to survive. And here he was, this young man who had thrown away all of these blessings he had in his father's house to do life on his terms. And now he found himself living amongst the pigs. And one day he thought to himself, I had it so much better in my father's house. But I have sinned so greatly against my father. There's no chance my father would ever forgive me. There's no chance he would ever love me. But maybe if I go and fall on my knees before my father, maybe if I return and and plead and beg that, that he would even just allow me to be a servant in his household, maybe my father would allow me to just serve him as a slave. And even there, I would have it better than living amongst the pigs. And so this young man set out for home planning to beg his father's forgiveness to allow him to come and work as a servant. And here we see this beautiful picture of grace and mercy. We see, for example, how in grace, this father welcomes his wayward son home, forgiving his reckless choices. But in mercy, in mercy, the father runs to welcome his son. He embraces his son. He clothes him. He feeds him. He celebrates him. Friends, this is the gospel. Grace and mercy hand in hand, two sides of the same coin. I love it how Richard Trench, a 19th century Anglican bishop, describes it. He says the central idea of grace is God's unmerited love. But the central idea of mercy is that of relieving the misery that those sins have brought about. Grace pardons. Mercy brings relief. I think of my friend Tom. My friend Tom, a former alcoholic, ruined his entire life through drinking. He lost his wife. He lost his family. He lost his hope for living many years ago he found himself on christmas eve day with a bottle in one hand and a shotgun in the other he saw no reason to go on living in that moment a mutual friend of ours by god's grace called him on the phone and invited tom to come to christmas eve services at church that night And that was the beginning of Jesus doing a work of grace and transformation in Tom's life. In his grace, he forgave Tom of his sins. In his mercy, he set Tom on a new course of healing and restoration and new life in Christ. Today, Tom actually works at my brother Jared's church serving Jesus. And friends, the gospel can do this for you too. God's grace can pardon, his mercy can bring relief and healing, restoration and new life, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. 1 John 1.9 tells us that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is God's amazing grace. But then the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is a work of God's incredible mercy. This is the message of the gospel, friends. The great 20th century preacher James Montgomery Boyce, he probably defines mercy better than anyone else I found this week in my studies. He describes mercy as grace in action. Mercy is grace in action. I think that's a great definition. And so when we apply this understanding of mercy to our beatitude today, Jesus here in Matthew 5 verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful. And what Jesus is communicating here is that God's favor, remember blessedness here in the beatitudes means the favor of heaven, the smile of heaven, the approval of heaven. Jesus is saying that God's favor rests upon those who put grace into action. The merciful who seek to relieve the brokenness and pain of life in a fallen world. I think of my friends who work at one of our local crisis pregnancy centers. These women who come in in desperate situations often, finding themselves pregnant, not having any hope, not knowing what to do. And and our friends at the crisis pregnancy center, in God's grace, they welcome these women in their brokenness without any judgment, without any condemnation. And they offer them the hope of Christ. And in mercy, they demonstrate the love of Jesus through practical care of these women, through pregnancy and beyond. Again, friends, that's what mercy looks like. Mercy is grace in action. Now, we think about this concept, right? And obviously, when we, when we think about this reality, what Jesus is calling us to here is a radical idea. And it's certainly not easy. Putting grace into action doesn't come naturally for any of us. To be a merciful person truly requires a supernatural work of God in our lives. And this leads me to mercy matters number two this morning, the means of Mercy. The means of mercy. How can we become people of mercy? The key, friends, is found in the Beatitudes that we've already studied. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Matthew 5, 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now, friends, if you recall from our previous weeks together, the Beatitudes are a description of Jesus' people. The the Beatitudes describe for us what a Jesus person looks like. Someone who's put their hope and trust in Jesus will inevitably display these character traits in their lives. The the Beatitudes really are like a mirror for us. And, And we hold the mirror of the Beatitudes up to our lives, and we examine our lives in light of the mirror of the Beatitudes, and these Beatitudes show us if we've truly humbled ourselves before Jesus. Because the one who's humbled themselves before Jesus will display these character traits in their lives. And so we need to examine our lives in light of this mirror. We need to ask, are are these things true of me? Am I a merciful person? Is this the kind of person I am? The, The other thing that we discover as we study these Beatitudes is that there's a progression to these Beatitudes. And we've talked about this already. There's a progression. One leads to the next and they all hang together. John Chrysostom, who's an early church father, he describes the Beatitudes as sort of a golden chain. He says they're sort of a golden chain because one hangs on the next, and all together they display what the Christian life looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their utter depravity in the sight of a holy God. Blessed are those who mourn because of their sin and cry out to Jesus. Blessed are the meek who desire God to strip away our self-centeredness and our selfishness and our pride. Blessed are the are the poor and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who long for more of Jesus, who long to look more and more like Jesus. And so we see, again, these beatitudes are like a progression, a chain. They all hang together. Now, here's where it gets exciting. You see, as God's grace begins to work in our hearts... And as the Holy Spirit does his work of transformation in our lives, what inevitably results from this is a life that overflows with the character traits that we find in the last four Beatitudes. So we look at Matthew 5, 7 through 10, where we're going to be today and in the coming weeks. And what happens is when you're poor in spirit and when you mourn over your sin and when you long to be meek and stripped of your self-centeredness and pride and when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what this does is this inevitably produces a life of mercy and a life where you are pure in heart and a life where you are a peacemaker and a life where you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's sort of a golden chain. These things all hang on each other. And so you see, friends, the mercy that Jesus is talking about, the means of this mercy, the way we become merciful people, is wholly a supernatural work of God in our lives. We can't manufacture mercy any more than we can manufacture any of the other beatitudes in our lives. We can't do these things. You can't make these things. God does this work in our lives. And it begins by acknowledging the poverty of spirit that's present in each of our hearts. It begins by mourning our sins. It begins by longing to be like Jesus and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And as we do these things, as God works these character traits in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, he conforms us more and more into the image of Jesus, into Jesus people and this by the way friends is the correct to, the corrective to a wrong interpretation that many people make when they read the fifth beatitude jesus says here in matthew 5:7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy and so a lot of people incorrectly think well look at this is kind of like a salvation by works teaching Right? Jesus is saying the the merciful will receive mercy. So if I just exercise mercy, if I just try to be a merciful person, then God's gonna give me mercy. But you can never give enough mercy, friends. God is the standard. His holy righteousness is the standard. How could you ever be merciful enough? So Jesus isn't saying here that you're saved by mercy. He's not saying we don't, he's saying we don't give mercy to receive mercy. He says we give mercy because we've received mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is what Jesus is talking about here. And so again, we hold the mirror of these beatitudes up to our lives, and we ask the question, am I a merciful person? And if not, friends, this is your opportunity to plead to God for mercy. Because if you look at your life today and you see a life that isn't characterized by mercy, your only hope is Jesus. Because you can't make yourself merciful enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for those of you who are Jesus people here, what's this going to look like when we see mercy expressed in our lives? I want to consider this morning one of Jesus' greatest teachings on mercy. It's the the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's take a look at this parable together. It's found in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, the, the, the age-old, generations-old, hated enemies of the Jews, when a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus says, Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The young man said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise you go and do likewise friends this is a story all about mercy but more than just a story about mercy this is a calling from our Lord a calling to all of his disciples to be people of mercy Here in this parable, Jesus says that that Jesus' people, his disciples, are to be men and women who exercise mercy. And here in the the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus shows us that mercy has four parts. What are the four parts of mercy? Number one, we see that, that mercy recognizes suffering. The Good Samaritan saw this man in his desperation. He didn't ignore him in his suffering. He saw him. He noticed him. How often, friends, do people go through life and we see people who are in desperate straits and needful conditions, and it's so easy to just look the other way and pretend they don't exist? But Jesus says the merciful recognize the suffering. And then Jesus says, number two, that mercy moves the heart with compassion. This man didn't just see this man beaten and broken, laying in the ditch. He was moved. His heart was moved. Mercy moves the heart to compassion. And then mercy seeks to relieve the suffering. Not only was he moved, his heart was grieved by the suffering that he saw, but he actually went and he picked this man up And he poured oil on his wounds and he bandaged him and he put him on his horse and he took him to an inn. He was moved and he acted on that, seeking to relieve the suffering. And then, fourthly, we understand in this parable, Jesus teaches that mercy acts without partiality. Even though Samaritans and Jews were hated enemies of one another, it wasn't the two Jewish religious guys who stopped it was the enemy the samaritan the other who showed partial who showed no partiality this is the way of mercy for jesus people thomas manton the 17th century puritan he says this he says mercy is a melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready in all occasions to be instrumental for their good I love that imagery, right? A melting disposition. What does that mean? It means that God melts our hardened hearts. He melts the hardness of our hearts that we desire to act out in mercy, meeting the needs of those in their desperate conditions. Heard a great story of mercy a few years back, story of a woman named Mary Johnson and a young man named O'Shea Israel. Back in 1993, when he was only 20 years old, O'Shea murdered Mary's son, Laramium, at a party in North Minneapolis. 20-year-old young man, life taken, in a callous act of violence. O'Shea was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Mary, being a Christian woman, at the sentencing, forgave O'Shea. But she would later explain that she hadn't truly forgiven him. She said the words in the courtroom, but in her heart there was hatred and anger and bitterness. Over the course of the years, as O'Shea languished in prison, Mary felt the Holy Spirit working in her heart, telling her that she needed to truly forgive O'Shea, that she herself would never truly be free unless she could forgive him. And so Mary arranged to go and visit O'Shea in Stillwater at the Stillwater Correctional Facility. And one day they sat together and they talked and they cried and O'Shea begged her for forgiveness. And Mary stood up and walked across the table and embraced O'Shea. Ten years ago, O'Shea was released from prison. Today... Mary describes O'Shea as her spiritual son. She's adopted him as her own. And not only has she adopted him as her spiritual son, O'Shea literally moved into the duplex next door to Mary, where they see each other each and every day, a mother and her new son in Jesus Christ. A few years ago, Mary started an organization titled from, named From Death to Life, an organization focused on bringing forgiveness and reconciliation to victims and perpetrators of violence. And now they travel the country sharing their story of what God's mercy and grace can do in a person's life. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy matter number three this morning, we need to look to the model of mercy. As we've just seen, the means of mercy is the message of the gospel laid out for us in the first four Beatitudes. It's the gospel that transforms us into merciful people. But like the character traits of righteousness that we studied last week, mercy, just like righteousness, it's another one of these characteristics of Jesus' people that we can gain even more of. You can grow in mercy, friends. Would you like to be a more merciful person? Maybe I should ask your spouse or your kids or your neighbors, would you like them to be a more merciful person? You know it's possible. But the question is, how do we do that? Well, friends, there's only one way that I know of, and that's to look to the model of mercy, to look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God incarnate. Jesus Christ is divine mercy in the flesh. And Jesus didn't just teach us to be merciful, but he showed us what mercy looks like through his own example. You know, it's really interesting. When you read through the Gospels, do you know there was one request made of Jesus more than any other? The the one request you see made of Jesus more than any other, it was this, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Everywhere he went, and with everyone he encountered, Jesus brought the healing balm of mercy. To the broken, he brought restoration. To the blind, he gave sight. To the weak, he imparted strength. To the hurting, he offered hope. To the lost, he gave direction. To the infirm, he granted wellness. To the dead, he bestowed life. Friends, mercy is found in Jesus Christ. And so if we want to grow in mercy, there's only one way to do it, and that's to get closer to him who is mercy. We need to seek more of Jesus. As the author of Hebrews declares in Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Come into the throne room of grace. Come into the throne room of mercy. And I will give you help in your time of need. And so, no matter who you are, and no matter how much you've struggled with being a merciful person in your life, Jesus says to you today, Come. And you too can receive mercy. You may be wondering how Corey Tenboom's story ended. Corey says, his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloemendel the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask him for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not even the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Yes, friends, forgiveness is possible, even for the most grievous of wounds. That's the miracle of mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this powerful message that you've called us to. And it's not only a powerful and compelling message, Message, but it's an incredibly challenging one. It's a message that we can't live out on our own. And so we need your help, Jesus. We need your mercy to set us on a course to become more merciful people. As we talked about last week, Lord, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We long to be more like Jesus. And you were mercy incarnate. And you have bestowed mercy on each and every one of us who have fallen on your amazing grace for pardon for our sins. And you've done your work of new life and restoration and hope, all gifts of your mercy. And Lord, we long to be more merciful ourselves. We long to show this world the way of Jesus through our lives and how we Reach out to others in their lostness, in their brokenness, in their desperation, in the consequences of their sins, and in the messiness of this broken, sinful world, Lord, that, that has left so many hurting and helpless. Jesus, help us to be merciful as you were merciful. And we need your help in that, Jesus, because we can't do it on our own. And so Holy Spirit, work within us and make us more and more into the image of our master. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, would you stand for our benediction this morning? Comes from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you, friends. Have a great week. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the Ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday